we're in the middle of a, a, a series here called Jesus, the one and only, looking at uh, the life of Jesus, things that he said, things that he did that make, makes him exclusive among all his contemporaries, makes him different from everybody else. And, you know, we live in a world today that is, um, that is very, uh, you know, has bought into the idea of pluralism, the idea of just, uh, you know, just, you know, let's just include all belief systems, let's just include all religions, that all belief systems and all religions, they lead to the same place, they end, we all going to end up in the same place anyways, and that's the world that we live in, uh, even uh, Webster's Dictionary their word for 2016 was post-truth, and that we live in a post-truth era, that truth is really relative now, and it's not even something that even matters anymore. And so uh, we're looking at, you know, several things about Jesus' life. And the, the interesting thing about truth is that truth in and of itself is exclusive. You cannot, you know, if you follow the line of pluralism, just a little ways down in the thinking, and you begin to ask questions and begin to try to reason uh, through those things, you'll find out very quickly that those thoughts just, they don't work, that you can't say that everything is the same. You can't say that all truths are equal or all opinions. This idea uh, of tolerism that is, you know, permeant in our society today, that we hear these things just don't hold water when you actually, the, the, the initial thought seems to be appealing because it's this idea that, you know, let's just, we don't want confrontation and we don't want to tell people that they're wrong and we want everybody to win. We don't want anybody to lose and we want everybody to get a trophy. And this, this kind of mindset, this kind of attitude that we see in our world. And uh, truth in and of itself, just the word truth alone is an exclusive word because it gives the idea that one thing is true and another thing is false. And so we're looking at Jesus and some things that he said, some things that stood out. And, uh, you know, the first week, we talked about Jesus had this conversation with Pilate, and he said, he, he, you know, Pilate was like, are you the king? And he's like, well, what do you think I am? And he's like, I'm not a Jew. And, you know, Jesus was like, well, I am a king, and my kingdom's not of this world, and if it was, my people would come and rescue me, and all this kind of stuff. And, and, and then Jesus says, if anybody is on the side of truth, they listen to me. And Pilate says, what is truth? And the Bible says that he walked out of the room. And this issue of truth, what is truth? Um, you know, it can, if, if we don't understand the way Jesus lived and the way he, he unified truth and love together, because we get this idea that you either have to live in love or you have to live in truth. And truth demands that you become the, the person that's right, and then anybody that disagrees with you, therefore, you can be intolerant of them, or you can somehow dehumanize them, or you can somehow ridicule them, make fun of them, or even if you take it as far as it can go, you can terrorize them. Or we, we can all live in love where we basically say, let's just all get along and it doesn't really matter what you believe because, you know, we're all, you know, people and let's just, you know, your truth is your truth to you and your truth is your truth to you and let's just all have our own idea of what truth is. But Jesus really kind of showed us that we could live in truth and in love at the same time, that you don't have to abandon the truth and live in love. And you don't have to abandon love to live in the truth. And then uh, last week we were talking about how Jesus, in his conversation, his first conversation with the disciples, he was 
establishing this idea that in the Eastern culture, in the Eastern world, everything in the Eastern culture, the Eastern world is about what family you grow up in, who your father is, where you live, all this kind of stuff. In our culture, it's all about what you do. It's my education, it's my accomplishments, it's my prestige, it's my name, it's my fame, it's my wealth. Um, in the Eastern culture, it's different. And so Jesus establishes himself in this Eastern culture. The disciples wanted to know where he was from. And he says, well, hey, if you want to know the truth, he says, my home is heaven and my father is God, which is an extraordinary claim for somebody to make. But if somebody's going to make a claim like that, then there's going to be things that are going to back that up. And so we looked into uh, uh, a couple of things. I know that uh, last week's service is not on our podcast yet. It will be up this actually next week if you want to hear the whole thing. But the virgin birth, if Jesus had no beginning, how can you be born and have no beginning without a virgin birth? And we see confirmation of this throughout history, throughout the word of God. And even in the Quran, one of Christians, Christians' most vile enemies, even in the Quran, it confirms that Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus is... Uh, perfect life. Historians and theologians alone, uh, together believe that Jesus was probably the purest man to ever walk the face of the earth because nobody, including his enemies and contemporaries, nobody could ever find anything wrong with him. Nobody. Even Pilate okay, could not find anything wrong with him. And the only people that could find something wrong with him were the religious people that they were misinterpreting the law according to you know, the Jewish traditions. And the Bible says that they were even making up things. And we see his contemporaries. We see the stories of Krishna in the uh, Mahagata Gita, uh, his stories of all the things that he did. And we see the stories of uh, Muhammad in the Quran and all the errors and mistakes of his life. And we know the history of Buddha and the mistakes that he made and the things that he did and the fact that he spent several lifetimes reincarnating, going over and over again, implying the fact that he... It was not perfect, and that he was looking for the truth. And we never see one time ever uh, a, a sin or a mistake or Jesus having to ask for forgiveness or him actually saying, I don't know what the answer is. I don't know what the truth is. Let me go find out what it is. He stood alone. He stands alone amongst all his contemporaries. And today we're going to look at uh, something that happens uh, relatively early in Jesus' ministry, a conversation that he has with um, some of the uh, temple uh, priests and leaders and some confrontation that happens. So we're going to be looking at the Gospel of John uh, starting in, in chapter 2. If you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, uh, John chapter 2. And it says right here, starting in verse th 13, it says, The pastor of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords, and he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and, with, and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he says, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a, house, a, a place of business. And his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal, for your house will consume me. And the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? 
All right? Now, you know, for a long time, I remember uh, being somewhat puzzled by this, uh, this event in Jesus' life. Uh, and I would say probably in my late teens, early 20s was the, was the time that I, I kind of was more puzzled about this particular story. Because what I'm seeing here is that Jesus runs into the temple and people are just kind of like they're selling stuff and they're, make, you know, they're pulling in some money here and making some money here and stuff like that. And he comes in here. And he just takes this whip, and he's like whipping people, and he's pulling these things over, and he's, you know, dumping out money on the ground, and he's running the animals out. And I'm thinking, dude, man, like, like really? And, and he's, you know, he's, he's not one. it's almost just like he's not wanting people to sell stuff in church. And then I, I, I go to church. And I look around at church, and we got bookstores, and we're selling Bibles, and we're selling Boston butts, and we're selling raffle tickets, and we got all this stuff. And I'm thinking, well, I mean, like, you know, would, would Jesus come in here and start, like, turning over our coffee, you know, grinds and, you know, our holy grounds, you know, coffee shop and, you know, the Hebrews coffee shops that we got going on and stuff, you know, and... It, I guess I really didn't understand what was going on. I didn't understand what was happening in the story. And that, you know, these, these Pharisees and religious leaders, what they were doing is they were exploiting the, uh, the Jewish people because they were having to travel a long ways. It's kind of like this. If you're going to travel to the temple to make a sacrifice to God to find forgiveness of your sins, what would it be easier to do? It's kind of like, you know, do I take the sheep with me or do I just like go there and like find a sheep to buy when I get there? You know what I'm saying? I mean, what's easier? You know, do I want to really kind of herd sheep and goats and doves and stuff the whole way to the temple? Because listen, we're not packing it all up in a car and driving. We're, we're hoofing it, you know. So it's like, well, let's just, let's just go there and we'll buy, we'll, we'll, go, we'll go purchase a sheep, all right. So then what happens is that these, uh, these religious leaders, they're, they're jacking up the price to these things and exploiting the people so that they're paying an enormous price uh, to be able to go into the house of God and worship God. They're taking advantage of the people, this is what's happening, and this, is, this becomes a very lucrative business for them. They begin to start making a lot of money doing this, right? you know, which is, becomes a real problem for us. You know, money can be, right? Money can become a real problem when we get fixed into our income and we get fixed into our money. We have a hard time letting it go even when we know that what we're doing is wrong. And so this is where Jesus steps in. He comes in, and this is, this is the reason why. It's not because they're selling sheep. It's not because they're selling, you know, sell, it's because they're exploiting the people who are trying to worship God. They're taking advantage of them. And, you know, um, religion, uh, religion in itself, if it's not, you know, if, if, if people who are in leadership, people who God aren't connected to the heart of God, aren't living right, it, You've been there. We've seen the devastation that religion all by itself uh, can run on a world. And, of course, Jesus wasn't about religion. But you look here at the story. He come, Jesus comes into this temple, and he clears everything out of the temple. And he does all this stuff, and these people are, like, freaking out. And they're like, uh, so they ask him this question. They said, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? 
Um, now, I think that, you know, when they ask this question, I think that there's a follow-up question that's really important here because this is what I want to know. Do they really want a sign? Do you think that they really wanted a sign? When they asked Jesus, what sign are you going to give us to show us that you have authority to do this? Do you really think for a moment that they actually wanted Jesus to give them a sign? I think that's important because it helps us understand exactly what's going on here. And you know what? I have a similar problem with my children from time to time. Yes, for the glory of the Lord. Those of you, are, are, don't, don't, don't shout me down now, okay? <clears throat> I remember when I was younger, um, I hated these four words. Because I said so. <clears throat> Come home, man. Look, there's anointing there. <clears throat> because I said so. I hated those, those words. Hated them. Okay? Mom and dad would make some decision that I didn't like. And so I said, why? And they said, because I said so. And I made, up, I made, a, I made a decision in my heart when I was a young person. I said, you know what? I'm never going to say because I said so. I'm going to explain all of my reasons and why I make the decisions that I make. And I did for a while. Because here's, here's what happens. And in my ignorance, I did not even know this. But this is the way it goes. And you, you will feel me. Okay, You will feel me. All right, That they want me... Something and I say no, and they ask why, and I tell them why, and they don't like why I tell them why. So then they ask me why again, and so I explain it to them maybe in a little bit more detail this time, only that they still don't like my reasoning why, and they continue to ask me why. And now I go from being reasonable to being reasonably angry, explaining my reasons, to I eventually said, you know what, I'm dad, I said so, be quiet. <laughs> the real thing is, is that they don't want to know why. They don't want to know why. They just want me to change my mind is what they want me to do, okay? They don't want to know why, because even when I tell them why, it doesn't make sense to them, and it's not ever good enough. Even when, look, I'm, look I'm, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And my, my ninth grader now, it's like, Duh! what is the matter with you? Like, he will argue with me about things that are just not even reasonable, you're, you're, you're not even being reasonable now. You, you don't understand. Uh, what you're saying doesn't even make sense, and you know it doesn't make sense. What I'm saying makes perfect sense, and you know it, and you're still arguing with me. Why? Because they don't, they don't want to know why. 
This is, look, we, I don't know. There's some bad stuff that came up right there. I was just trying to get some stuff on my chest, I guess. <laughs> uh, for the glory. Look, man, there's nothing that prepares you for this. So, um, you know, my, my, my kids, when they ask me why, they are already um, predisposed to not agree with whatever decision or whatever reason why I give them. Therefore, whatever reason I give them for why I make the decisions that I make are not ever going to be good enough. Uh, and, and so I think that what we have is a similar situation here, all right? We have a very similar situation that's happening here that these, these Pharisees are looking at Jesus and they're like, you know, why are you doing this? Well, even if Jesus told them why, it wouldn't be good enough. And they hear why in the first place. And they're saying, give us a sign to show us your authority that even if Jesus give them, gave them a sign, would it really even be good enough for them? But we live in a world, listen, we live in a world today that lives like that. They live like that. We have entire generations of people that this is how they've grown up. That we have made our minds up that what we know and what we believe is 100% the truth. And it doesn't matter what is presented to us contrary to that truth. We are already predisposed to believe our way, all right? And it doesn't matter what else happens or what anybody else presents to us. And this is a very dangerous place to be. And this can happen sometimes in religion where somehow the benefits of religion outweigh the, contra the contradiction that has happened along the way. You have people that, have, that have, have led thousands, hundreds of thousands of people astray because of certain benefits and certain ideologies that they have promoted. And they haven't even gone to check out the contradictions of all the things that these that these people talk about, they don't even look at them because their minds are so focused on what it is that they've already made their minds up to believe in. Listen to this by a guy by the name of Thomas Nagel. He's the professor of philosophy at New York University. He says, I want atheism to be true, and I am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people that I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope there is no God, I don't want there to be a God, and I don't want the universe to be like that. That, that. that in and of itself sums up the position of the vast majority of people that, want, that, that don't want to believe that God exists. I, there's a, a guy by the name of Ray Comfort. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He's based out of California, Los Angeles area, and um, he's, um, he's the author of several really, really good books like Hell's Best Kept Secret and stuff like this that's um, really, really good stuff, and he goes around on the streets, um, he actually has a, a lot of really good videos uh, on YouTube, like the Atheist Delusion and, and some things like this, you watch their, you know, it's like an hour long, so it's kind of long, but it's very, very, very good. Um, stuff. You go around on the streets and what they do is they, they just, you know, cold call people and just start talking to them about, you know, God. And so he'll go up and he's, 
he's telling these people that are professing to be atheists and all this kind of stuff. And what he does is he just kind of breaks them down intellectually over the course of their conversation. Ultimately, he, he, he gets down, and, and, and the vast majority of everybody he talks to admits this at some level, at some point in the conversation, is that the one, one of the main reasons why they don't want to believe in God is because if they believe in a God, it means that they have to be morally accountable to somebody. I have to be morally accountable because I'm not the one that's in charge anymore. I'm not the one that determines my steps and my fate and what is socially acceptable or socially right or wrong. I don't want somebody telling me what is right and wrong. I don't want somebody telling me what I can and cannot do. And so, you know, he takes them on a journey and he says, you know, if you were in an airplane and the airplane was going to crash and I told you you needed to put a parachute on and you told me you don't need the parachute because the plane's not going to crash, he said, the best thing that I could do for you is that I could just hold you out by your ankles out of the airplane for about two seconds and then you'd want that parachute on really quick. And so... Because all of these people, almost every single one of them, and here's the things that we, we all, everybody feels this way for the most part about themselves, that we all feel like that we're good people. Who doesn't feel like they're a good person? If some stranger came up to you on the street and said, are you a good person? You're like, well, I, yeah, I think so. <laughs> and you, you go talk to anybody. It doesn't matter who they are, a Hindu, uh, uh, you know, Islamist. Buddhist, uh, atheist, agnostics, you, you ask them, are you a good person? Well, yeah, I, I like to think I'm a good person. Even people that do things they sh- that, that are they're grossly wrong think that they're good people. And then he, so he, he asked them this question. He said, okay, well, so have you ever lied before? Just a little lie? Well, yeah, yeah. How many times? Oh, thousands probably, thousands. Yeah, who knows? Countless. Have you... Have you ever um, stolen anything like a paper clip, pencil, piece of paper, you know, a quarter from somebody that doesn't belong to you? Yeah, yeah, sure. Everybody. Who hasn't, right? You know, who hasn't done that? Have you have you ever taken the name uh, God's name in vain? You know, oh, oh yeah, all the time. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Have you ever looked at somebody with lust? You know, have you lusted? You know, after somebody, you looked at somebody and kind of lusted after them. Oh, sure, sure. Okay, well, you're a liar. You're a thief, you're a blasphemer, and you're an adulterer. Now tell me how good you are. How good are you? Are you good enough? Right? And what that does is that helps them see that they need a parachute because they're not really as good as they think that they are. And, uh, but we have a bunch of people in our world, we've already made our minds up. People have already made their minds up. What? how they feel about certain things in life. You know, there are several other times throughout the Gospels where people ask Jesus for a sign. In John chapter 6, verse 30, they ask Jesus for a sign. Listen to this. They ask Jesus for a sign right after he got done feeding about 12,000 people with five loaves and two fish. Like, I, I, I don't really know, I mean, what do you want you, you, five loaves and two fish, and you just fed like 12,000 people and like had baskets of food left over from five loaves and two fish. And here's what they said. 
They said, show us a sign because Moses gave us a sign because he fed the Israelites with manna out of heaven. So it's like they're making this comparison. Look, it's the same thing that's happening here. Do they really want a sign? Jesus is walking and living amongst them. We know that the stories of Jesus are so numerous that even that the books could not contain all the things that he did during his life and tenure, during his three and a half years of ministry on the earth, and yet these people are asking Jesus for a sign? Do they really want a sign? It's like the atheist who says, well, I'll believe God when I see a sign. I'll believe God when I see God. You know, if you give me evidence to God's existence, then I'll believe it. No, you won't. Because if you really wanted evidence to God's existence, it's not hard to find. It's not hard to find. Listen to this one right here. Uh, Jesus drives out a demon from a man in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus drives out a demon, and it says in, uh, a little bit later on in verse 38, it says, Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered to them, and he said this, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at judgment will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Noah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Do you hear the, the fascinating things that Jesus is saying here to the Pharisees? The Ninevi- Listen, the Ninevites... He's saying that the Ninevites were more honest than the Pharisees because at the preaching of Jonah, okay, that Jonah showed up on the shores and he preached repentance. And listen, the entire city repented so, so strongly that it actually shows up in the history books. That this repentance made such a difference. And it was at Jonah, okay, Jonah, who was running from God, just some, you know, dude that just decided he didn't want to do what God told him to do, and so God had to basically kind of like swallow him and then spit him up on the shore and say, do it anyways, all right? And he was scared to do it. And yet they heard the preaching of Jonah, and they repented, and Jesus is saying that somebody that is greater than Jonah is here preaching to you, and you refuse to repent, the Ninevites, the people of Nineveh will stand before you on judgment day and condemn you because they listened when they didn't have Jesus standing in front of them. And Solomon's wisdom was so widely recognized in the world that people would travel great distances to come and listen to Solomon speak the wisdom that came out of his mouth, these things that he would talk about. People would travel afar, and yet Jesus is saying that somebody that was greater than Solomon's wisdom, had more wisdom with Solomon, was in their midst, and yet they refused to listen. They refused. Jesus offered more authenticating signs and persuasions than Jonah, 
and he offered more beauty and wisdom and thought than Solomon, and yet they still rejected him. Why? Because it was not the evidence that they were looking for. They weren't looking for evidence. They were looking for the ability to control all of their ambitions. All of the things that they wanted to do, they wanted to have control, even at the cost of truth. Even at the cost of knowing truth. And how many times in our own lives are we tempted to do the same thing? We ask God, give us a sign for this. Give me a sign for that. God, if you want me to live this way, God, if you want me to to give a tithe, God, if you want me to serve you in the church, God, if you want me to do this, then you need to give me a sign. And all the while, we're asking God for a sign. He's already given us all the evidence that we need. But we ignore the evidence because we don't really want God to give us a sign that compels us to move past our convenience. We don't want a sign. If we get down to the real heart of the matter, the real place that we are, we like controlling our own schedule. We like controlling our own finances. We like controlling our own time. We like being able to sleep in on Sunday mornings. We like being able to do whatever it is that we want to do to make sure that we can do it because in whatever sign that God may give us, or whatever it is that he might do to try to compel us to do something greater, we're not really paying attention because we don't want that. We don't want it. And in a microcosm, while we may not be that way when it comes to the great evidences of God, we can do it in a microscopic way in our own faith. Our own faith. That God is compelling us and he's calling us to do something. But the reason why we don't is because we're waiting for God to give us some big sign. And all along, he's already nudged you in your heart. He's already nudged you in your heart. And that's all the sign that you need to follow the voice of Jesus. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. If you're going to be a part of his flock, if you're going to be a part of his people, then you better be a part of listening to his voice. And when he tells you to go, when he tells you to do, you better get up. You better do what it is he tells you to do. You don't need a sign. You have all that you need right in front of you. How did Jesus respond to this? Them saying that they wanted a sign. I think this is interesting. He, he said, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. What, what greater proof could Jesus offer anyways? What, I mean, really. You know, I mean, he's already walking around raising the dead. He's already walking around healing blind eyes. Lame people are getting up walking. We, we know that, you know, uh, all kinds of diseases, leprosy and stuff, that's all just vanishing. You know, he's walking on water, speaking to the, uh, to the storms and calming them. He's feeding, you know, multitudes with just a little bit uh, of, I mean, there's a, a, it's just a myriad of miracles and stuff that are following him everywhere he goes. Instead of just doing one more thing, he says, 
the only thing that I'm going to give you is that you're going to destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. And obviously, we know that this went way over their heads. Even the disciples at that time. Now, John, he actually remarks a little bit further on the verse. He says, hey, hey by the way, Jesus wasn't talking about the temple. He's talking about his body. All right, this is only because John is writing this account after Jesus rose from the dead. And it wasn't until Jesus rose from the dead that they were like, oh, my gosh. When Jesus said he's going to raise the temple in three days, he's talking about his body. He's talking about him. They connected the dots. Then he refers back to it now because hindsight is 2020. He connects the dots earlier in that story, so we can as well. But at that moment, in that time, the, the, the Pharisees didn't see that. All right? You see, naturalism is compelled to believe that death is the ending of life, the irreversible ceasing of one's brain activity. Naturalism... Uh, just in case you, you don't understand what naturalism is, naturalism is the idea that, that we all got here through natural means, right? That nothing supernatural uh, happened in order for us to exist the way that we exist, all right? So, you know, it probably is more familiar with, you know, evolutionary theory and the Big Bang and some of those things, those concepts that follow that train of thought. That's a naturalistic perspective on man's origin, well, the problem with naturalism is that in naturalism, basically, when you die, you just cease to exist. That's it. You're just gone. It's just brain activity is over, and you just cease to exist and are no more. Philosopher Albert Camus, he said, death is philosophy's only problem. Death is philosophy's only problem. And this is a great problem for a naturalist perspective because then you, you can ask the question, well, uh, why is anything relevant or important if that's the way it is? If my life and everything that I do in my life just ends the moment I stop breathing and I am no more, I cease to exist, then what is the point? What is the point in being good? What is the point in following rules? What is the point about what I believe, what I do? What is the point in any of that? Because we will all just die and cease to exist. And this is where they obviously have major problems. But Jesus gave the greatest proof of his authority by accurately predicting death and the time of his bodily resurrection. Jesus it's the greatest proof that his author, of his authority and his position. He, look, how, can you, how, how can a natural person do this? How can a natural person predict your death and the exact day you're going to rise again? Who can do that? Who can make such a claim like that? And the temple authorities, listen, all they needed to do when Jesus, and we're talking about from a historical perspective, we covered this actually in much more detail in our, our Easter Sunday morning service when we talked about the resurrection and everything, all right, but, but all that had to happen was that the temple authorities, all they needed to do was just produce the body of Jesus to just destroy the whole room where the Jesus has rose from the dead. That's all they needed to do. From a historical standpoint, that's all they needed to do. And yet they couldn't even do that. They couldn't even provide a body, the body of Jesus, to destroy the rumors that somehow Jesus had not risen from the dead. And we know 
And we, we even see through historians and theologians alike the, 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 his, the historical accuracy and information that we have concerning the resurrection of Jesus is, is very, very significant. But when you look at this, and Jesus talks about, he makes this statement, destroy this temple and in three days I'll rise again. I want us to look a little bit deeper into something as I'm getting ready to kind of close here. When he mentions the temple, it confused the Pharisees and it confused his disciples because they thought he was talking about a building. The building place that was built to go in, you know, the, the, the Jewish temple that had the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant and the inner courts and the priest would go in and only the priest could go in to make sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. This Holy of Holies place, this significant building where God abide. He, this is where God lived. But Jesus, obviously we know that Jesus wasn't talking about the temple, but he used the same word, and he was referencing his own body. When he mentioned the temple, he wasn't talking about the temple, even though those who were standing around him thought he was. He was talking about his body. And so what he does is he lifts our sights beyond stones and walls to a place where he seeks to dwell, and that's within every human being. He talks about the temple, not from the standpoint that it is a building, a place that you have to go and somewhere you have to, something, somewhere you have to go. He's talking about the body, our body, your body, his body being the temple, the place where God wanted to abide. We know that in Corinthians, Paul talks about how, you know, our bodies are, are the temple of the living God. And that God <clears throat> desires to dwell within us and, and live within us. That we, our bodies, are his temple. You see, in all pantheistic religions and in New Age thinking, the body is seen as an extension or continuation of the universe. In all pantheistic religions, religions out there that believe that there's more than one gods and all these different gods, and all New Age thinking, just this, this idea of universalism and, and, and pluralism stuff that exists out there, all of this believe that the human body is in a, a continuation of the, an extension or continuation of the universe. There's a guy by the name of uh, Deepak Chopra. And he said this, he's kind of a, a, a new age philosopher that's out there, he's, that, that goes around and speaks, a very, very well-known person that he describes our existence. He describes your body like this, like you are a wiggle, a wave, a fluctuation, a convolution, a whirlpool, a localized disturbance in a larger quantum field. That that's your existence. Your existence is just this blip that just kind of somehow just through, the, through this existence of universalism that somehow your, your body, you're just like, you're like here, I'm here, and then you just go. That's, that's how they explain our existence. That's how they explain our bodies and who we are and, and, and how we're here, that we're just, just something that just kind of happened. For a brief moment, and his viewpoint of, of human essence and Jesus' viewpoint of human worth are at two completely different ends of the spectrum. 
believing that somehow we're just some universal wiggle or wave that has just kind of popped up for a brief moment. It will be gone. And yet Jesus talks about the worth and value of every human being. So valuable, so much valuable that Jesus says, I want to live and abide in you. I want to live in you. You're not just a blip on a radar. You're not just a wiggle or a worm or something that just kind of popped up for a moment. No, you're valuable that I have created you in my image and I want to abide with you and I want to live in you. They're significantly different in terms of the way that we see this world, the way that we comprehend and understand human worth. And these two different worldviews are the very reason we have some of the problems that we have in our world today. It's the very reason we have the problems that we have. These two worldviews address many different issues. The right of every individual life, even the ones who are still in the mother's womb. The pleasure and consummation of sexual delights reserved for the sanctity of marriage. The injunction against suicide, the care and protection of one's health, the injunction against killing and the command to love others more than we love ourselves and to work for their good. All of these flow from the fact that this body becomes the dwelling place of God. All of these things become important to us because our bodies, our bodies are the temple of the living God that Jesus talked about. His body, saying his body was a temple. It was a holy place. And all of a sudden, people become valuable when we see that that body that we're looking at, that that person that we're looking at is an abiding place of God Almighty, that he wants to live inside of that person. And it's not just a body that's here for pleasure. It's not just somebody that's here, a blip on a radar screen that somehow is here to just do whatever they want, to treat that body however they want, to do all this stuff. All of these things become significant. All of these things become significant because of how Jesus taught us to view people. When we don't fully understand this truth, this is what happens. Pornography and cruel humiliation of men and women and children, death in the womb in the name of personal rights, the breakdown of the family for many different justifiable reasons, the desecration of sex in our entertainment industry, violence in an unprecedented proportions, and losing the high value that God has placed in the body, we are in a free fall at the mercy of greed, cruelty, and lust. When we lose the high value that God places on the individual, we find ourselves as a society in a free fall. And we are at the mercy, we are at the mercy of one's individual greed, cruelty, and lust. You know, certainly the, the history of the church is not without blemish by any stretch of the imagination. We know that we've seen it. Uh, you can find abuses in, in every walk of life because people are people and even people who start out with pure intentions sometimes can end up with bad ones. And the church is not exempt from that by any stretch of the imagination. 
But listen, Jesus sent a message loud and clear. And that, we, that, that is this, that we are his temple. We don't have to turn in a certain direction of the day certain many times to pray. We are not bound by having to go into a building so that we can commune with God. There, is no, there are no unique postures and times and limitations that restrict our access to God. My relationship with God is intimate and it is personal. The Christian does not go to the temple to worship. The Christian takes the temple with him and her everywhere they go. And Jesus lifts us beyond the building and pays the human body the highest compliment by making it his dwelling place, the place where he meets with us on a daily basis. Come on. Come on. This is why Jesus is the one and only. Nobody else does this. No other religion in the world talks like this. None of them do. None of them place the value of the life and the significance of the human being like this. It's, it's amazing the stuff that you can see across the world and find out about other things, people, and the things that people will do to try to appease God by, by mutilating their bodies, by sacrificing babies, by doing other things because they're trying to appease these gods. And Jesus came to say that we are all valuable and you don't have to do any of those things because the only sacrifice that needed to be made made by God's own son and he did it for you and he did it for me so that we wouldn't have to do it to ourselves you see even today he would overturn the tables of those who use the temple as a marketplace for their own lust greed and wealth Jesus is the one and only. He has given us faith. Listen, he's given us faith, but not just blind faith. It's faith that is confirmed by evidence all around. It's not, you know, we live in a world, it's just, it's, you know, science says don't bring faith into the conversation. All the while, they reject the fact that it takes faith to believe some of the things that they believe. Why? Because they don't want evidence. They don't want evidence. They want to create their own ideas. But he's not just given us blind faith. He's given us faith that is confirmed by evidence all around. If we choose not to believe it, it's because we are predisposed, predisposed not to. He has done the one thing that no one ever has and has risen from the dead. And he, and, he, and he predicted it long before he ever did it. He predicted it. And he said, this is the sign. You want to know my authority. You want to know my position. You want to know what makes me different. You want to know what makes me the one and only. I'm going to rise again. And I'm going to do it in three days. He has placed a high value on every individual by choosing our bodies to be his abiding place. And there's no other prophet, there's no other self-proclaimed Messiah or God who has made such revolutionary claims and backed them up the way that Jesus has. None. And none stand before him. None. Oh, this song that we sang this morning, it's one of my favorite songs right now. It was new this morning. You know, you're, uh, what a beautiful name it is. What a wonderful name it is.
there in the bridge, it says this right here. You have no rival. You have no equal. Listen, God doesn't have a rival. He, he, he doesn't rival with anybody. It's not, you know, Superman and Lex Luthor. That's not what we're dealing with here. We're not dealing with Batman and, and, and Spider-Man and the Green Goblin. It's, he doesn't have a rival. He, he has no rival. He stands alone. He has, and if he has no rival, he certainly has no equal. None. None can compare to him. None. He's that good. You stand to your feet today. <clears throat>